Good morning. Let's open with prayer. Father, we so much need you in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. We need your wisdom. We need your direction. We need your presence. We need your um, love in our lives. We ask that you'll join us today. Lead us, direct us, transform us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we are going to be doing lesson uh, seven uh, in the quarterly. If we get to the lesson seven in the quarterly, that's what we're on today. Uh, I received a couple of emails, and uh, <laughs> no, no, these, these are very. The, the first one, I just I'll share the first one. It says, "I just want to thank God for your ministry. I recently discovered it, and I was searching uh, as I was searching online for more meat." to the Sabbath school uh, lesson study discussions, I was weary of the humdrum and prayed about something more substantive and common reason appeared in the search. It has been less than six months. I am learning about God in a better view than before. I like this God better. This way of thinking about what God has revealed in his word is more consistent with who he is. May God continue to make your ministry fruitful and the building up of his kingdom, for the building up of his kingdom. And, And then I received this email. Dear Dr. Jennings and Common Reason team, our family has been so blessed by your ministry, book, seminar, and weekly Bible studies. We were particularly touched by the latest study, which focused on today's events and your loving response to a troubled email you received. I write, you t- I write to you today with a heavy heart requesting prayer for my current situation. You see, I'm a federal employee in a medical clinic and have just received notice of, of the national mandate that we must receive a COVID vaccine within eight weeks or face unemployment. I know this day, I knew this day may come, but I am still concerned nonetheless as I have a health condition that I feel would worsen if I were to take this experimental shot. I had hoped to use my talents in this job and retire with benefits, but it looks like that may not be an option. Pray for me and my family as you see, as we seek his wisdom and guidance in these uncertain times. Thank you. God bless you and your team for what God is doing through you at this critical time in earth's history. Let's take a moment and, and pray for her. Is that okay with you all? Yeah. Dear Father, creator of heaven, earth, and all that is, the God of the future who knows all eventualities. We ask that you will intervene and intercede in in our friend's circumstance here and give wisdom and direction, and you know a a thousand possible outcomes that we can't even think of. Uh, We don't know, I don't know what is best in this circumstance for this person, but you do, and I pray that you will lead them and impress them with the decision they need to make. And not just them, but all all of your friends around the world who are struggling with similar situations, be with them and direct them to follow your methods and principles in their life. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. But as you hear this, we prayed, what is your reaction? Do you hear a medical problem? An employment problem? A political problem? Or do you see the issues of the great controversy at play? Two weeks ago, I read the quote from the book Education, page 190, that the student should learn to view the word of the whole. He should gain the knowledge of the grand central theme of God's original purpose. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and trace their workings through the records of history prophecy to the great consummation, Christ's second coming. And he should see how the controversy enters every phase of human experience, how in every act of life he himself reveals one or the other of the two antagonistic motives and how whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. I'm going to suggest to you, and I'm going to unpack for you, and we're going to talk about this right now, but I want to frame it for you. We are actually not talking about the COVID vaccine, even though we will be on the template of the COVID vaccine. The COVID vaccine is merely the medium through which decisions are made, methods are practiced, and I want you to understand that we're focusing on the methods that are being practiced around this issue. And I'm going to lay out the case for you that this issue is being used right now to condition your minds to accept Satan's methods as justifiable and reasonable, so that when the next issue in the great controversy comes, you'll still be willing to use those methods on somebody else. That's the landscape I want to unpack for you. 
I think we are entering the very final movements before Christ returns. And the battle is heating up. And I want to be prepared, and I want to help you prepare your minds to be protected. We are being placed, all of us are being placed right now in society in decisions in which we're being asked to make decisions in governance of ourselves. Take this injection, don't take this injection. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Attend church, don't attend church. Visit family, don't visit family. And how we treat others on all these issues, what principles will we practice? But upon what are we to base these decisions? Each one of us are trying to decide what is best, what is right, what is truth. Which is the best rationale, reason, ideas, conclusions, beliefs, options? Which is the best? That's what we want. We all want that, don't we? In other words, how many of us can directly do direct primary evidence investigation and confirm the various perspectives out there for ourselves? None of us. I, so, in other words, this situation is requiring each one of us to make a decision on who we're going to trust. That's what it's requiring of us. Who are you going to trust? Do you trust the government? The CDC? The NIH? The local health department? Is that who you trust? Do you trust your politicians, left or right? Do you trust the media personalities, left or right? Do you trust popular opinion, what the community thinks? What's popular, what everybody else seems to do? What the crowd's doing? Is that what you trust? Do you trust your doctor? How many doctors do you know that have personally done virus research, specifically COVID virus research, and have themselves confirmed what they're reading in the journals? I haven't. I can't confirm that stuff. I can read what's in there and what's printed. I've already given you a couple examples in the last year where several articles printed were printed fraudulent, completely made up, fraudulent, and they eventually got retracted, but not until after they spread across the country and had an impact. Are doctors, even the majority when they agree, ever wrong? What did the majority of doctors think when Louis Pasteur came out with germ theory? What did the majority of doctors think when, when, when hypertension in the 1930s was identified as a health problem? The majority rejected it initially. What did the majority of doctors say 100 years ago about tobacco use for lung disease? But each one of those eventually came, the majority view was was actually debunked, and the minority view actually was proven to be correct. And now the majority of doctors understand hypertension is a real problem, and that germs uh, are, are real, um, there are real bacteria and viruses that can affect, and that tobacco causes disease. But how did that happen? How did the doctors, the majority, leave the bad ideas behind? What method led them from the wrong conclusions to the right conclusions? There's a method that led them. Some call it the scientific method. But, but this takes us to the heart of the great controversy. The war between Christ and Satan, which began in heaven. In heaven, when Lucifer started his rebellion and began to tell lies about God, were the angels able to do primary research and uncover evidences to confirm or deny what Lucifer was saying? What does the scripture say about Lucifer? Up to that point, he was perfect and righteous in all his ways until iniquity was found within him. Can angels read hearts and minds? No. So they could not go back into history and look for historical evidence of Lucifer uh, doing anything harmful. They had to decide who they would trust. Who they would trust. We face the same battle with our minds today, a question of who we will trust. But what decision do you make when you can't do primary research to uncover the evidence for yourself? Well, if we have time, the wise approach is to wait and see. To allow things to unfold. The truth eventually becomes manifest over time. If you have time, step out of the middle, watch and see what happens. 
But if you're forced to make a decision, you're in an employment position. You've got to do this in eight weeks or else. What do you do then? Examine the methods being used. If people are genuinely lovers of truth, practicing godly principles, pursuing truth, and wanting to actually know the real reality of the situation, what method do they employ when questions arise? When data is brought forth, when examples and cases are are referenced that don't seem to fit the accepted narrative, if they love truth, what do they do with that? Historically, in medicine, the practice of medicine, products come onto the American market by companies doing double-blind, placebo-controlled trials that uh, have to show efficacy uh, or they work in the outcome and that they don't have serious consequences that would make them uh, contraindicated. And... When they come to market, they come to market with their benefits stated and the known risks and side effects are published. This is how it happens. But it's understood. It is absolutely understood that the study population is always a narrow population, a limited population. It doesn't represent the wide range of genetic diversity and physiological differences found in the population at large. Thus, it's understood that once a product comes to market, that and enters the large population, new side effects and new problems very well may arise that were not seen in the small study populations. Historically, medical standards encourage reporting of complications or harm that was suspected to be caused by the various treatments. Standard medical practices have been historically scientific, meaning they love to pursue the truth, the evidence, the facts, and when things are reported, they actively investigate to confirm that this is a problem or refute. Nope, this is not a problem. That's healthy. It's mature. Truth loses nothing by close investigation. There have been multiple products over the years that have come to the market, only later to be removed because of unknown serious problems that emerged after they were released in the general public, even death. You've all heard of these products being recalled and removed because they weren't known until they hit the market. Or new black box warnings, which are black box meanings that's a very serious warning you need to give about this medication that was added because a new, a new problem arose. It was not seen. This is normal. This happens. This is healthy. We're open to truth. This is what we want to do. Doesn't this approach, being open to evidence, following where it leads, doesn't it sound reasonable to you? Doesn't it give you greater confidence when concerns are met with a willingness to investigate and to uncover what's true? Who would not be willing to do this? Who would not be willing to investigate and uncover truth? Wouldn't it be those who know their position is false? that their product has a problem, the truth will expose it. There have been products like this that have come to market. I mentioned one. I'll tell you about it again. It's called Zyprexa. It is an antipsychotic, very effective antipsychotic. It works very well. But the company knew that it also had a side effect burden, that it increased diabetes type 2 and obesity severely, uh, weight gain of 50 to 100 pounds uh, on this medication in some people. The company purposely suppressed or withheld and misrepresented the data to obstruct uh, people from knowing about those risks. And then when doctors began to see indicators in their, in their practice, hey, my patients are gaining weight on this, and they, and they brought it to the company's attention, the company downplayed it, they denied it, they obfuscated, they said it's anecdotal, it's not really related, and they resisted investigation for a long time. Because they already knew. When you either know there's a problem or suspect there's a problem, and you have it already good, things are going the way you want them to go, and investigation is only going to put you at risk for finding something you don't want to know about, you don't want open investigation when concerns are raised. You want to suppress it. You want to stop it. This particular manufacturer of Zyprexa, eventually pled guilty to a criminal charge and paid a $1.42 billion settlement. 
We see the same methods of refusal to investigate evidence and concerns when it comes to the COVID vaccine. Researchers come out, and everything I'm going to cite here, the references are in the notes. So if you'd like to know where to find it, just get the notes. When Dean puts them up, usually tomorrow, uh, and you can get those references. Researchers come out with the... Uh, uh, with evidence that the COVID-19 spike protein, which when you get the vaccines, it instructs your body to make the spike protein, so then your immune system reacts and creates antibodies to the spike protein. So the spike protein that your body is making, there's evidence that has come out that the spike protein binds to a heparin-binding proteins and in the brain increases the accumulation of beta-amyloid proteins, which are implicated in Alzheimer's disease, tau proteins implicated in Alzheimer's disease, alpha-synuclein proteins, which are implicated in Parkinson's and Lewy body disease, and prions, spongy form disease. This research suggests that the vaccines could lead to neurodegenerative changes in dementia. What would be the godlike ethical moral response? Would it be actively to investigate? Would it be to inform the public and give them the option of waiting for more information on this? Or is the godlike response to suppress this information and not inform the people before they get an experimental injection? Perhaps this will turn out to be a false signal. Perhaps the vaccines don't contribute in any way to neurodegenerative changes. But until we know... Shouldn't people be informed and given the option? Why withhold evidence? Over 12,000 deaths from the vaccines have been reported to the VIRS, uh, CDC VIRS web, uh, data website in seven months, which calculates to approximately one in 13,000 risk of dying from the, from the injection. One in 13,000. Assuming those numbers are not depressed because the, they're actually accurate and there is actually good reason to believe that the, that the 12,000 is a, is a smaller number than the reality. But assuming those are not depressed, should people be informed that they have a 1 in 13,000 risk of dying before they get the injection? What is the godlike approach? What about children who have essentially no risk unless they have leukemia or some other um, serious illness, but kids that are healthy have essentially no risk at all of dying from COVID. Should they be told there's a 1 in 13,000 risk of dying from the injection? And why would we push it on them? Why would we actually push something that could increase their risk of dying from an illness that has very low risk of causing death? What is the Christian, ethical, moral, truth-based approach? When pathologists who have been spent the last 16 months examining blood samples of COVID, uh, COVID-recovered people report, quote, the following. A natural infection induces hundreds upon hundreds of antibodies against all proteins of the virus, including the envelope, the membrane, the nucleocapsid, and the spike. Dozens of these antibodies neutralize the virus when encountered again. Additionally, because of the immune system's exposure to these numerous proteins, our T-cells mount a robust memory. Uh, T-cell memory to those infected with SARS-CoV-1 is at a 17 years and still running, meaning they still have immunity 17 years later from SARS-CoV-1. Whereas the vaccine triggers the body to make the spike protein and the immune system only creates antibodies to the spike protein. What would be the honest, ethical, and truth-loving approach? Should we investigate? If this is true, wouldn't this be something easily verifiable by taking samples of people who have recovered from COVID and verify very quickly they have a range of antibodies that give them robust immunity? And if it's verified and true, wouldn't it give millions of recovered? Up, it's estimated we have up to 100 million Americans who have recovered from COVID. Wouldn't it give millions of Americans a great sense of comfort and reassurance and reduce their fear? And would recovered individuals need to worry about re-exposure and mask wearing and getting vaccinated? And why refuse to verify or refute this? Why coerce recovered individuals who have antibodies to get an experimental injection? Other physicians who have seen increased vascular problems in their vaccinated patients became concerned that the spike protein, which was initially advertised as it will stay locally, it will anchor locally. 
Uh, that's been completely disproved. It spreads throughout your entire body. And the spike protein is designed to grab on and attach. And what they've discovered is it grabs on and attaches to the vascular, to the endothelial linings inside your capillaries. And so doctors have noticed and concerned um, that the spike protein was doing this and binding to the smallest blood vessels and triggering microclots in their body with subsequent vascular and cardiac problems. So one doctor began doing D-dimer blood studies and found that 62% of his patients uh, who had the vaccine had microclotting problems. What is the healthy godlike approach? Is it reasonable to investigate, to determine if this is real or some false signal, some artifact, something not associated with the vaccine at all, just something maybe in this doctor's patient population? Uh, we don't know. I, I don't know if this is, it's a signal. The normal historical process of medicine, when signals like this come, is they get investigated. They get refuted or confirmed. Why are we not doing that? June, July 25, six days ago, 2021, New South Wales, Australia, Health Department released figures on their COVID hospitalizations at that time. 141 individuals in the hospital, 43 in the ICU, 18 on ventilators. 60 of these individuals were under the age of 55. 28 were under the age of 35. Of the 43 in the ICU, one was in their teens, seven in their 20s, three in their 30s. And then he drops this in in the last second as he ends his interview. All but one of these have been vaccinated. 140 out of the 141 have been fully vaccinated. Do you remember something called antibody enhancement? Where if you get the vaccine, it may actually make you more vulnerable to a more virulent infection if you get exposed? That the vaccine causes your antibodies to make the virus more easily enter your cells and, and cause sickness. Is this happening? This is why in every previous coronavirus vaccine attempt, they failed when they did the animal studies, because in the animal studies, it caused antibody enhancement. And then when they got exposed to the real virus, they died because they were more vulnerable to the virus having the vaccine than if they had not had the vaccine. Tim, I have a friend who was vaccinated and did get the the virus after the vaccination and was extremely sick. She's made it through it. And then yesterday, my brother had somebody come to his house want to verify if he had been vaccinated. So they are going around the house. Yeah, so the, the point here is I, I don't know that that's happening. It, 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 I don't know that, that that's, that's happening, but the point is, should we investigate? What's the standard medical process and practice historically prior to this? Should people be warned of the possibility and given the liberty to decide whether they want to take the injection or not? What is the ethical, truth-seeking approach to these and many other findings? I, I'm stopping here. I, I could have several more pages of the same types of things that are surfacing. And none of them are being investigated. They're all being suppressed. Wouldn't the godlike, truth-loving approach be to actually investigate? See if it's real, reproducible, documentable. It's an artifact. It's not real. It's refuted. Why isn't it being investigated? What are the? Why aren't the people being told the potential risks before the injection? What does it mean that officials suppress such medical data and don't want to investigate? And why the hard push? Understand why the hard push to force the injection on everyone right now? Is there some crisis in our country right now? Are hospitals overwhelmed right now? 164 million Americans have taken the vaccine. Uh, it's estimated up to 100 million have recovered from COVID. That's 264 million putting together. Well more than two-thirds of the population are likely have antibodies now to protect them. So why this hard push? Why the persistent, slanted, and fear-magnifying media coverage? Like telling people, if you've been watching the media, how contagious the new Delta virus is, which it is. Contagious means it spreads really easy, and you can catch it really easy. And the Delta is more contagious than the, than the version that came into the country a year or so ago. And so 800 new cases here, 1,000 new cases here, uh, spreads there. All these people got it here. People vaccinated are getting it. Do you, do you hear the constant bombardment uh, of the contagiousness of this new Delta virus? you hear it? 
Do you simultaneously hear that it's markedly less virulent, no more virulent than common flu, maybe less virulent than the seasonal flu? Do you hear that being told at the same time? And there's strong data that supports that out of Britain. The, the death rate from the Delta in Britain is 0.008%, which is less than the seasonal flu from the Delta. 100,000 patients tracked on that. Large numbers of people. Good, good, good data. Do you hear them telling you, yeah, it spreads, but it's much milder. Likely not to have a bad outcome. Which would do what? If they told you the whole story, it would reduce your fear. But just marketing and promoting the, the, the virulence, uh, excuse me, the, the contagiousness of it, it's designed to what? Make you more fearful. Again, I'm not saying any of my concerns that I've listed here are proven. What I'm demonstrating is that normal medical ethics and godly principles of investigation and truth-seeking are not being followed by the pro-vaxxers. Why? Why did the director of the CDC get on national television news and tell people that children are dying at a higher rate from COVID than from seasonal flu when the CDC's own website published Public website data shows exactly the opposite. That flu is much more lethal to children than COVID. Why would she do that? And then follow up with children must wear masks. We'll get to the masks in a little bit. So while I can't do primary research myself, I can't. I can't research all these things myself. I can't confirm or refute what, what's been said here. However, I can spot the methods, and so can you. And these methods are not the methods of God. The Provax methods are the methods of God's enemy. Something is wrong. This is part of the great controversy. It's designed to impact your mind, to get you to accept the method, to get you to practice the method. And as you practice and accept the method, you believe it's okay and normal, and you accept it again when it comes down the pipe. Satan has no truth on his side, so he cannot appeal to evidence and truth. Thus, he must use other methods. And of course, he lies. Of course, he lies. But more than just falsification, he depends on... There's other methods. I'm going to go through a list of methods he used. I want you to see if they're being practiced today. He uses the authority of office, a position... Proclamation, claim, declaration, trust the one in charge to tell you the answer. Believe, follow without investigation and evidence. In religion, this manifests with ideas like just believe, have faith. If you have faith, you don't need evidence. Feelings are reliable and you can trust them. The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. He's the pastor, the priest, the rabbi, the mullah, the pope. Who are you to question? This kind of thinking the devil has been using for millennia in religious circles. In society today, though, it comes out like the CDC says, Dr. So-and-so says, the NIH says, the New England Journal says. And this approach, appealing to authority of office, is, not cre uh, is, is now creating a new lie, a new deception. Believing the experts is now, this is what's happening. I want you to watch for it. Believing the experts is now presented to you in this little phrase, quote, following the science, unquote. When they say we're following the science, we're following the science, we're following. You don't want to follow the science? They're not actually talking evidence. They mean following the experts opinions. That's what they mean. Yesterday, I got an email article from Psychiatric News. It's the newspaper of the American Psychiatric Association, which I'm a member, so I get their, their news. And in the Psychiatric News, there was a professional, which is a professional medical newspaper, there was an article entitled, Anti-Vaxxers and, and Water Witches, Mistrust of Science and the Limits of Reason. And the article went on to state the following. I'm going to quote to you what the article said, uh, this little section. The common thread in these personal vignettes is, of course, a deep-seated denial of science and mistrust of scientific experts. 
a word that is nowadays pronounced with a kind of dismissive hiss. Indeed, experts in epidemiology and infectious disease, such as Anthony Fauci, MD, are not merely doubted by a substantial proportion of the public, they are threatened with bodily harm for advocating the vaccine against COVID-19. It is easy to explain away such science denial as the result of mistaken information and bias. Yeah, if you don't believe Fauci, you're a science denier. This is common. If you don't have discernment and you hear these politicians and these various leaders, they are constantly saying, we're following the science. We're following the science. We just want to follow the science. We're going to put masks on because we're following the science. They are not following science at all. It's a lie. They're following the weight of somebody's authority of office. It's one of Satan's strategies. If you don't have truth, use the authority of office. But you can tell whether the person in authority... Now, let's be clear. Not every person that has authority in his office um, is presenting lies. Okay? But you can tell which ones are not following truth and which ones are following truth in the use of their office. You can tell because those who are not advancing truth, when a lover of truth stands up and begins to challenge with new data and evidence, what's Satan's next method will be used by those who don't love the truth. They will seek to silence the voice of opposition. They will shout them down. They will label them a heretic, fire them from their job, retract their published articles. Notice, retract their articles. Not rebut the article with an evidence-based scholastic counter-article, which is the historic way this happens. If you've got the truth, you, you show where this person's logic and reason and evidences don't work because you've got the truth. You, show, you give it a, a, a rebuttal article. That's not happening. It's retractions. Silencing, canceling their engagement, deplatforming them, imprisoning them, even killing them. This is what happened to God's prophets in the Bible. This is what happened to the great reformers during the Reformation. This is what's happening to those who question the pro-vaxxers today. Again, look at the methods. This is the great controversy at work. If the vaccines are really safe and effective, asking questions and pursuing the evidence will only confirm that. But the fact that these methods are employed by the pro-vaxxers suggests they have something to hide. Satan also uses the methods of inducement, bribes, payoffs, giving you a reward for doing wrong. But if you don't take the payoff, then you're threatened with something painful. The classic godfather approach, take the bribe or have your legs broken. Satan used all these methods on Jesus. He tempted Jesus by lying and presenting himself as an angel of light when he was not. He misquoted scriptures trying to deceive, so deception. He offered Jesus a bribe, all the kingdoms of the world. He inspired the religious authorities to try to deplatform him, to denounce him as a, as a, as a doing his miracles by the power of Beelzebub. And ultimately, coercion, threat, violence, and crucifixion. God's methods are the methods of truth presented in love, leaving people free. These are the methods of God's people. Listen to this historic quote out of a book called Evangelism, page 171. See, if you agree, like this or not, Christ seldom attempted to prove the truth is truth. He illustrated the truth in all of its bearings. Then he left his hearers free to accept it or reject it as they might choose. He did not force anyone to believe. This is what we present the truth in love, leave free. I'm not going to prove, I'm going to illustrate, demonstrate, show, provide evidence. But then you're free to decide that's a godly way. Should we practice this godly way only in our religious beliefs? Or should we practice this in all avenues of life? In every phase of life, it enters these two antagonistic principles. So what method do you see being practiced by the proponents of the experimental injection? Do they want honest, open investigation of the evidence? Do they want to leave people free? Do they seek to censor people, to restrict information, and to silence voices that question? 
Do they use incentives to bribe people to get the injection? Gift cards, free meals, various bonuses? Do they use threats? Lose your job, can't go to school, can't travel, can't shop, can't worship, can't visit family, lose your license, lose your business, get arrested. Do they use threats? But some will email me and protest. They, they will say the government simply wants to save lives. They will ask, how can you, Dr. Jennings, be so insensitive? You're going to kill people. This is a completely false argument. Doctors who asked questions about Zyprexa's obesity and diabetes signals that they were seeing were not voicing their concerns in order to cause harm. They were voicing their concerns to stop harm. My questions are not designed to kill people, just the opposite. My questions are designed to save people. And that includes saving people from both temperate illness and death, but even more importantly, save them eternally. Save their minds from being corrupted by these destructive practices. The methods being employed by the pro-vaxxers are not the methods of God. They are not actively pursuing truth at this time. And to be clear, I want to say this, you can be pro-vaccine, pro-COVID vaccine, and be godly. You absolutely can. Because you use godly methods to advance it. You present your understanding, your truth, your rationale, your reasons in love, but then you leave people free to decide for themselves. It is okay to be support the vaccine. You can do it and be godly if you believe it really is going to save lives. But, but the method would be to, to persuade on evidence and leave people free and then pursue the signals to, to be ready to be corrected if it just turns out. And if you're a lover of truth and it turns out that when this came to market, it was we, we didn't see the signal like the Zyprexa uh, or whatever. Uh, it, when you finally see the signal, what do you do with it? You investigate it. The specific action of the vaccine is not the primary concern. It's the methods we employ. And I'm warning against the prevailing mainstream culture, which is not grounded in scientific method or the principles of the Bible. How many Christians right now are falling into this satanic spirit and are willing to practice beastly methods to get other people injected? I'm neither for nor against the vaccine. You must make that decision for yourself. But I am for truth. I'm for love. I'm for freedom, for applying the methods of God in every activity of life, including how we address the COVID crisis. The methods being employed, notice again, I'm not saying the experimental injection itself. I'm saying the methods being employed, the deceit, the authority, the bribery, the coercion, the threats to get people to take the treatment are beastly. If you go along with these methods now and support them because uh, the support them being used on others, you are embracing the methods of the beast and are actively preparing your mind to accept them again when the next issue comes along that's necessary to use them to save lives. Jesus does not work this way. Only those who've developed the ability to discern, to think, to reason for themselves are going to be able to stand the deceptions coming on the last days. That's what our ministry is about, helping you learn to discern. Well, there's a well-known process to get people to, good people to do evil. Well-known process that will get good people to do evil to others. Psychologist Philip Zimbardo describes these steps necessary in order to get good people to do evil. He wrote this article, I want you to hear this, wrote it in 2004. Long before COVID, this is not some reaction to what's happening today. This is well known. In fact, it was written after Abu Ghraib and how they could get good soldiers to torture other people. And this is the steps. One, first step, provide people with an ideology to justify the belief for the action. We will die if we don't take this action. The only way to save, stay safe is to do this. We must do this to save lives. You have to have a philosophy that makes it Makes it, um, uh, you, can, you believe the action is, is justifiable. Two, make people take a small first step toward a harmful act with a minor trivial action and then gradually increase those small actions. So we'll socially distance. We'll limit family visits. To, uh, we'll limit visits to family and friends. We'll wear masks. We'll stop going to church. We'll close businesses. We'll get an experimental injection. We'll punish people who don't get experimental injections. Small actions keep building. Three, 
make those in charge seem like a just authority. The CDC, Dr. Fauci, the NIH, Health Department, they're to be trusted. They're a just authority. They said it. We should obey. Transform a once compassionate leader into a dictatorial figure. Anyone, including your compassionate doctor, who, uh, who doesn't want to get the injection, they want to kill people. Provide people with vague and ever-changing rules. <laughs> wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Fully vaccinated don't need masks. Fully vaccinated do need masks. Vaccines are effective. But being vaccinated doesn't protect you from reinfection. Relabel the situation's actors and their actions to legitimize the ideology. There are the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. The vaccinated are those who love others and want to protect life. The unvaccinated are selfish. They don't care for others. They, they're willing to kill people. Provide people with social models of compliance. Look, if you get the shot, you can travel. You can go to work. You, can, uh, you won't need a mask everywhere. Uh, you can go out to eat. Uh, compliance makes life easier. You can, you can keep others safe. You'll be a good and righteous citizen. Allow dissent, but only if people continue to comply with the order. Of course you can voice your complaint as long as you get your shot and wear your mask. <laughs> May, and the last step, make exiting the situation difficult. If you don't get your shot, you can't travel, you can't go to college, you, you'll lose your job, you'll, uh, you will be in danger, you'll be a danger to others, thus you must be punished. These steps are well documented to lead good people to join groups that will do harm to others. Do we see these methods being employed today? Again, this is about your mind. It's not about the shot. It's about your character. It's about the methods you're willing to employ. But that's not all. Have you heard of de-individuation? De-individuation. It is the process of a person losing their individual identity and surrendering their mind and actions to the group. It is part of the process that leads to mob mentality and groupthink. It is described by social psychologists in classic lynch mobs and genocides. Social psychologists have researched factors that lead to de-individuation, the loss of identity. When this happens, people feel less personal responsibility. They surrender responsibility to the group, but the group's doing it. It's not me. They are less compassionate. They're, they're, uh, they will exploit and hurt others more easily. They will more readily break rules and act in antisocial ways. And what is one factor that is consistently in groups around the country, around the world, in different cultures, one factor that consistently contributes to de-individuation in groupthink? Anything that hides your identity. So online avatars lead to online bullying and willingness to be ugly to other people. But in real person, person-to-person -person contact, anything that hides your face. Mirrored glasses increase the willingness to hurt other people and join groupthink. But mask wearing has a significantly higher impact on a willingness to be de-individualized de-individualized, be part of a group, and become less compassionate to people. This is why the KKK wear masks. It's why Antifa wears masks. Hoodies. Hoodies and masks. Hoodies do the same thing. Hide your identity. That's right. Hoodies do it too. Thank you. It is also why mask wearing by the populace is counterproductive to good social order and leads to more conflict, breakdown of compassion, decrease in love, increased willingness to hurt others, and as well as increased anxiety and mental health problems. Studies of groups find that when they identify together, this can be a religious group that sings together or prays together, um, or... Uh, when they dress similarly, march together, chant together, sing cadences together, and uh, that, that after the group experience, their physical athletic uh, performances are improved, measurably improved. They perform better. There's something about the group cohesion that energizes and, enhance, and, and improves um, physical ability. 
after the group experience. This is why military units train together, dress alike, march together, sing cadence, and so forth. They become more effective fighting force as a group than as the same number of people just showing up as individuals. However, when military units have to function in chemical and biological warfare zones, where they have to wear masks, their effectiveness is severely compromised by wearing the masks and contributes to the highest level of psychiatric casualties than any combat theater. And you may say, well, then why don't the KKK and Antifa moms become ineffective because they're wearing masks? Because in their settings where they're doing this, the, the mob becomes a group identity without any significant opposition or threat to them. If you see one of those groups, I don't care which group it is, be confronted by an organized military unit that will engage them in real combat, they will flee the field almost instantly. They'll disintegrate and evaporate and run away. They have no integration and unit cohesion at all. But these mobs, they mob where there's no actual organized resistance to them. This also goes to sports teams. Unified and cohesive teams perform better than divided and fractured teams. This goes to national resolve and spirit of a nation. Have you felt the disintegration and the disheartening spirit in our nation? What impact do you think, then, it will have on children in schools to wear masks for another year? Will they lose their sense of self? Will they become more programmable, less capable of developing their own identity, more willing to surrender their mind to the group? This is an overted and stated goal of those pushing woke policies. They want to destroy individuation and individual identity. They want people to surrender to groupthink. The biblical godly method is present truth and love, leave others free. Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. We do not coerce, compel, force, seek to override personal individuality. We seek to enhance developmental in, uh, de- uh, the development of individuality. We seek to help build up self-governance and self-control. Just the opposite of these practices. We are lovers of truth. We want to have the truth, facts, evidence presented to correct us and lead us to ever-increasing understanding of reality. So we don't seek to silent dissent. We're willing to engage in conversation with those who disagree with us. But those who either don't have truth, don't love truth, or don't have the ability to discuss truth, and there's plenty of those, they have no ability to discuss truth, instead will resist advancing truth and seek to silent dissenting voices. We will... uh, I've got some more, but I'm going to tie it to our lesson. The memory text for our lesson today, Genesis 45.5, and, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Why was Joseph not angry with his brothers? He had forgiven them, that's true. Did he also see there was a larger purpose? Okay, and I want you to understand this. Did Joseph um, hold attitudes and beliefs that, that led him to be able to forgive his brothers? It, yes, it was his underlying beliefs about God and his, and his understanding of God's kingdom that led him to do that. Um, did Joseph... Um, did Joseph believe in the promises God had given to Abraham, Isaac? And his dad, Jacob, did he believe in those? Did Joseph embrace he was part of that, that, that family of those promises? Did he still see himself as part of the family of, of, of Abraham, as part of Israel, as part of a member of that special group that held those promises? Or did he see himself now, having been sold into Egypt, he wasn't part of the group anymore? Or did he still identify as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Still part of the group. What happens when we see ourselves not in the group, but out of the group, from the outside? What happens when we see others not as part of our group, but as outside of our group? 
Look at history. When Protestants and Catholics viewed each other as outside the group of righteousness, heretics, evil, apostates, enemies of God, what's the result? When they, we're the righteous, you're the, you're the, you're the beastly. What's the result? When, when they see each other as fellow human beings and part of the Christian family, how do they treat each other? Does it make a difference in how they treat each other? Same question for Christians and Jews, Jews and Muslims. What about historical tribal divisions in Africa and Europe and Americas? We see somebody as part of our tribe, part of the human family, or, or no, this is, this is our, this is Cherokee, they're, they're Navajo or whatever. This is why um, this idea of tribalism, our, our willingness to, to, in our own minds, identify with some and not others, this, this group think, this is why a common enemy will unite previous opponents because the new common enemy puts the two previous opponents in the same group. We've both got the same enemy. Now we can unite. Group identity can form on many levels. Tribe, race, language, religion, gender, Historic nation-states formed along tribal, racial, and language lines with uh, religion used by the leaders to control the masses of the people, the shamans, the witch doctors, the priests, the popes. The United States was different, though. It formed not along racial or tribal lines. It formed on a common sense of values, belief in a creator who endowed all human beings with inalienable rights and the purpose of the government was to restrain abusive powers from encroaching upon them so that we all have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and we're equal under the law. It was this new set of values that we united under. That was our group. That's why I'm proud to be an American. That's why anybody from any other country, once they take their citizenship over, we pull them in. You're an American. It doesn't happen in any other country. You can become a citizen of another country, folks. Just try it. You will always be a foreigner. You won't be considered really one of them. Now, I'm reading a very interesting book, and I recommend it. It was recommended by one of our listeners, Dr. Terry Ott. It's entitled, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt. Lukanoff is a graduate of American University and Stanford Law School, and he has described himself as a pro-choice liberal and an atheist. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is an American social psychologist, professor of ethical leadership at New York University Stern School of Business and author. Uh, his main areas uh, are psychology of morality and moral emotions. I share their backgrounds because I want you to understand this is not political. These writers are not right-wing conservatives. In fact, they describe themselves as left-wing liberals. What I teach and what we teach in Common Reason are God's designs, his principles, his methods for life. And those truths transcend religion, political party. They're just the reality of how, they're just how reality works. And in this book... In their book, these two political liberals do an excellent job of describing three lies. They call them three untruths that have taken hold in America, ravaging American college campus and now spreading out through our society, uh, really uh, through Generation Z or the I generation that started college in 2013. This is where really when it started and it's been spreading since. What are the three untruths that they identify? And I'm going to unpack those for you. What doesn't kill you will make you weaker. Always trust your feelings. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. <coughs> now, they identify truths, and they identify these as three untruths because they compare these positions with the writings of the great sages of history, Confucius, Buddha, Socrates, Plato, and other great sages of history. And all the great sages come to the opposite conclusion on these three. And whether they believe in Christ or the Bible or not, universal truths are still universal truths, and they will come through. And so what doesn't kill you makes you weaker is a lie. It's not a truth. Here's the universal truth. 
It's stated as what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And the idea being is that we only grow and advance and develop through challenges, through overcoming obstacles, through facing painful and difficult experiences in life. This is the outworking of God's design law of exertion. Strength comes from exercise. Can you think of a Bible text that supports it? Romans 3... Uh, Romans 5, 3, and 4. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. This is also ancient wisdom. Okay, It's just the opposite of this other thing. So accepting the lie has led to concepts of avoiding things that are difficult, avoiding trials, avoiding obstacles, emotionally upsetting things. We must have safe spaces. We need to be safe and protected. We shouldn't have to overcome obstacles. We shouldn't have our ideas challenged. That's cruel to challenge our ideas. Concepts that, uh, that upset us, uh, words that upset us, that, that, that's, that's wrong. We must remove names from buildings and statues, and we must remove books from the library, and we must change the names of sports teams because they're insensitive and they hurt us, and it isn't safe in a society that would injure us in this way. And what happens to minds and characters when the lie is accepted? Destruction of mind and characters. People get weaker. They don't get stronger. Second lie, always trust your feelings. And all the great sages have taught that emotions energize us to action, but they're not to be trusted to tell us the truth. Can you think of a Bible text that supports this? James 1, 13 and 14, when tempted, no one should say God's tempting, for God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us is tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Feelings lead to temptation. When people accept a lie, though, then if they feel hurt, the other person is assaulting them. Anything that hurts is aggression. Words are violence. And it is okay to use physical violence to stop the speech of others that could hurt and upset us because those things are violent. Facts, evidence, truth don't matter. Only feelings matter. So they create false equivalencies like words that offend cause stress. Stress increases inflammatory factors in the body which hurt the body. That's physical harm. Therefore, words that upset are, upset are violent because they injure me physically. Therefore, it's okay to use physical violence to stop people from speaking words that would upset me. What's wrong with this thinking? It's a false equivalency. Replace words that upset me, cause stress, and the stress uh, with any other type of situation, like your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you. It causes stress. Stress causes physical harm. Therefore, breaking up with you is an act of violence. (laughs) Or making a poor grade on an exam, getting a a bad grade on an exam causes stress. Stress harms the body. Therefore, the teacher that gives you the bad grade is, is perpetrating an act of violence against you. Or being held accountable for sin, being brought to conviction by the Holy Spirit is stressful. Stress harms the body. Therefore, the Holy Spirit convicting of sin is an act of violence. Do you see the corruption? And then the third lie, life is a battle between good people and evil people. Throughout all human history, the sages have all taught that the battle between good and evil occurs inside every human heart. But the new view is that there isn't a battle in the heart. There's only a battle between good people and evil people. Thus, someone who disagrees with your view, challenges your belief, upsets you emotionally, they're evil and they must be destroyed. They cite several studies on how humans divide into groups and that it doesn't matter how people divide into groups. Once they've divided into groups, they automatically start thinking in terms of us versus them. Us versus them. It doesn't matter if they're divided by a coin toss. It doesn't matter if they have a a picture on the wall with lots of dots and you guess the number of dots, and based on your guess, you get to go into one group or another group. It has no bearing on how they're divided. Once they're divided, it's us versus them. They've done functional MRI scans evaluating brains of people uh, who are watching video of a person's hand either being brushed with a cotton swab, a Q-tip cotton swab, or being poked with a needle. If the hand being pricked 
by a needle is labeled as belonging to the same religion as the watcher, the area of their brain that registers pain spikes much uh, more active than if the person being poked is not of their same religion. Then they did the same study where they put them in groups based on something not related to their own identity. They put them in groups based on a coin toss. You're in the heads group, you're in the tails group. And when the persons had their hand picked that was in the same group of you based on the coin toss, the area of the brain that registers pain spiked larger than when they were in the other group. The us versus them causes us to have different emotional responses to people. We identify more with those in our group. I find the book quite interesting and compelling in its description of what has been happening in society the last eight years or so. They do a good job of documenting that what's happening is the fruit of seeds that were planted in our society going back to the 1960s that are Marxist in nature. Remember, these are left-wing liberals that are doing this. Marxism, historic classic Marxism, divided society into two groups, those with money and those without money, the rich and the poor. That's not how it's divided in the 60s. They replaced money with power. Those with power, those disempowered. And what's being taught on college campuses today, power is not actually about. So who's empowered? It's not actually about who has an office, who controls real assets, who has wealth, or even who's physically strong. It actually has no bearing on real power. What's taught as having power today in the new philosophy is designed as being of the same identity as the historic power holders. So the people with power in our society are heterosexual white men. And that's immediately equivalent to being evil in the new philosophy. Being virtuous or righteous is defined as uh, being part of the disenfranchised group, and that would be having an identity of those who are historically exploited people. So specifically, the most righteous or the most virtuous now are the um, non-binary sexual orientation black female. It doesn't matter whether you're a former black president of the United States living in a $14 million mansion in an exclusive neighborhood, you are disadvantaged and powerless and therefore righteous. And if you're a heterosexual white male working as a day laborer, living in a trailer and on Medicaid and food stamps provided for your family, you are empowered and privileged and therefore evil. That is the philosophy being taught. This is the philosophy of Black Lives Matter, critical race theory. It divides society, and it's antagonistic to the principles of Christianity. This is exactly the opposite of what Dr. Martin Luther King taught. Reverend King appealed to common human principles, common humanity, in his appeals to change society. He appealed to the great principles of Protestantism established in the Declaration of Independence in order to overcome racism and bring unity to society. Dr. King said, here's some of his quotes, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. But notice this one. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of the creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Do you see how Dr. King in seeking equality, did so by advancing the principles of Christianity, the common values of children of God. He, all, he referred to people as brothers and sisters and part of the family of God. He recognized that the founding of the United States was based on the principles of God. And he referred back to those principles, not having been fully realized and lived out, but the principles are right. Right. 
And we've gone over. I'll finish up with this. I've got so much in the lesson that we didn't even get to. And if you want the notes for all the days of the lesson, there's more pages in the notes. Normally my note pages are about 18 to 22 pages. Today it was 35 pages. Because I had extra. But people will say, well, Jesus divides too. I did not come to uh, bring peace but a sword. And he brought the sword of truth to cut selfishness out of truth and love to cut selfishness and lies out of our hearts to separate us into the healed and the unhealed. And I want to show you the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous and, the, and, and how those two groups divide. The righteous use the methods of God in how they approach and treat others and how they live their lives. The unrighteous use the methods of Satan that we already talked about, the lies, the coercion, the deceit, the voice, the, and all this other stuff. The righteous are honest. The unrighteous are dishonest. The righteous love all people, including their enemies. We want to turn enemies to friends. The unrighteous love only those in their group. The righteous give to help all humans. The unrighteous give to self and to their own group. Righteous divide, uh, righteous are, um, are divided from others based on character. Unrighteous are divide, divided from others based on identity issues. Race, sex, creed, whatever. The righteous live uh, healthy lives in harmony with God's design for life, his design laws. Uh, and, and, and being righteous is healthy because they live in harmony. The unrighteous, it, it's unhealthy, and it actually causes death because it's out of harmony with the laws of life. The righteous use power to heal and restrain. The unrighteous use power to coerce kill, and harm. The righteous leave others free. The unrighteous take freedom from others. Gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful that you, the all-powerful creator God of the universe, are righteous. That you use power to heal, to lift up, to save, to restrain evil, and you leave us free. We ask that your spirit will be poured out. The latter rain, may it fall. We need you. We need it. Give us hearts that love others, even our enemies. Give us the courage to stand firm in the face of, of opposition. Give us the wisdom to speak words that are in harmony with your kingdom and sh let us shine bright in the darkness around us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.